Chapter Thirty One of One of My Sons by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty One Sweetwater Has an Idea. I was greatly interested. Taking out a box of cigars, I laid it before him on the table. Be free with them, said I. If there is any help to be gotten out of smoke, let us make use of it. He eyed the cigars ruefully. "'Too bad,' he murmured. "'Unfortunately, it does not work that way for me. "'Some people think better between whiffs, "'but smoking clouds my faculties, "'and I would be no friend to Mr. Gillespie "'if I took your cigars now. "'Free air and an undisturbed mind for Caleb Sweetwater "'when he settles down to work. "'Smoke yourself, sir. "'That won't affect me. "'But draw the box to your side of the table "'and give me a rebuking look "'if my hand goes out to it "'before this subject is settled.' I did as he requested, but not to the point of taking a cigar. I could think without its aid as well as he. Now, sir, he immediately began, you were the first man to enter upon the scene of crime. May I ask if you will be so good as to relate afresh and circumstantially your whole experience with Mr. Gillespie? You cannot be too minute in your details. Somehow or somewhere we have missed the clue necessary to the clearing up of this case. "'You may be able to supply it. "'Will it bore you too much to try?' "'Not in the least. "'I am as anxious as yourself to get at the bottom of this business.' "'Begin, then, sir. "'You won't mind my closing my eyes. "'I find it so much easier to identify myself with the situation "'when I see nothing about to distract me. "'And, sir, since I dread speaking when actively absorbed in this kind of work,' "'Will you pardon me if I simply raise my finger "'when I want a minute for reflection? "'I know I am a crank and not much used to gentlemen's ways, "'but I appreciate kindness more than most folks, "'especially when it takes the form of respect paid to my whims.' "'I assured him I was only too ready to do anything "'which would serve to further the end we had in view. "'And all preliminaries being thus amicably settled, "'he dropped his head into his hands, "'and I began my tale in much the same language "'I have used in these pages. "'He listened without a movement while I spoke of Clare "'and of my entrance into the house, "'but his finger went up when I mentioned the appearance "'presented by Mr. Gillespie "'as he stood propping himself against the table "'in a condition of impending collapse. "'Was the house quiet?' he asked. Did you hear no sneaking steps in the halls or adjacent dining-room? Not a step. I remember receiving the impression that this old gentleman and his grandchild were all alone in the house. One of the greatest surprises of my life was the discovery that there were servants in the basement, and more than one member of the family on the floors above. A discovery which leads to our first argument, sir. We have taken it for granted, and certainly we were justified in doing so. That Mr. Gillespie knew whose hand poured out the poison he felt burning into his vitals. We have argued that it was this knowledge which led him to spend the final moments of his life in an extraordinary effort to settle the doubts of his favorite niece. But, sir, if he had had this knowledge, would he not have mentioned outright and without any circumlocution the name of the son he had finally settled upon as the guilty one? rather than have made use of the same vague phrase which had been his torment and hers, ever since the hour he told her of the shadowy hand he had detected hovering over his glass of medicine? With the remembrance in your mind of the few words he left behind him, 
are you ready to declare that you find in them any proof of his knowing then any better than before which of these three sons have mingled poison with his drink and sir you are a lawyer does it follow from any evidence we have since received that he even positively knew it was one of these three men might not his fears and the haunting memory of that former attempt have so worked upon his failing faculties that he took for granted it was one of his sons who had made this last effort at poisoning him it is possible i admitted but you don't place much stress on the suggestion no said i i don't anxious as i am that each and all of these young men should be relieved from the appalling charge of parricide i saw too great a display of anxiety on his part for the right delivery of what he believed to hold the last communication he had to make to his favorite niece for me to think these final words of his contained nothing more definite than a repetition of his former vague surmise he was facing immediate death yet all his thought all his fast ebbing strength were devoted to the effort of making her know that he had not been mistaken in his former conclusion that it was one of his sons who sought his life and that this son had now actually succeeded in poisoning him that he did not proceed further and name which one was due probably to a sudden loss of strength that he meant to say more than he did is evident from the he which follows the four words we have been considering true true but my argument holds an argument which the difficulties of the case surely justify me in advancing you say he would never have made such an effort to ensure the safe delivery of words that were a mere repetition of a former statement yet what more were they in the unfinished condition in which we find them do you think he could have been blind to the fact he had not succeeded in mentioning the name which alone could give value to his accusation and make its safe delivery a matter of real moment to miss meredith surely sir you do not believe his wits were so far gone that he regarded himself as having made his suspicions clear in those five words one of my sons he no i do not yet who can tell bright as his eye was his faculty of memory as well as of observation may have left him witness how he tore off the blank edge of the paper instead of the words he wished to send i know sweetwater's tone was gloomy a cloud seemed to have settled upon his newly risen hopes nevertheless i now felt bound to admit i cannot quite bring myself to believe that he was so bewildered on the contrary i feel confident that he was in full possession of his faculties when he cast that dramatic glance upward which by a happy inspiration i was led to interpret as meaning hope if we could penetrate this matter to its very core i believe we could find the truth we seek either in those five words themselves or in the means he took of getting them to miss meredith have you ever thought sweetwater that we have not given all the attention we should to the latter fact yes sir his hands had fallen from his face and he spoke with volubility it has struck you i see as oddly as it has us that it was a very strange thing for him to send into the street for a messenger when he had one right at his hand claire do you mean yes but claire is a child the slip of paper to which he attached such importance was unsealed and he dreaded its falling into wrong hands 
Miss Meredith already knew his secret, but for him to proclaim openly that his death was due to the hatred or cupidity of one of his children would not be the act of a father who already, at the cost of so much misery to himself, nay, as it proved, at the cost of his life, had kept back from every ear save that of the one confidant of his misery, a knowledge of the fact that a previous attempt had been made upon his life. Yet to send into the street for a messenger? Why not send for one of the servants? Or why, if he knew which son he had cause to fear, did he not bid the child bring down one of the others? Leighton was out, George was half drunk, and Alfred was two flights up. Besides, he might have thought that an alarm of this kind would prevent the delivery of the letter on which he had laid such stress. Who knows what goes on in the mind of a man conscious of having but one minute in which to perform the most important act of his life? True, true, sir, and yet there is something unnatural in his conduct. Something I fail to understand. But I don't despair. I won't despair. We have only begun the recapitulation of details from which I hope so much— supposing we go on and he sunk his head again in his hands i at once took up the thread of my relation at that point where i had dropped it when i approached mr gillespie i noted three things besides his tortured face and sinking figure first that the shade was pulled up over his desk second that a typewriter stood close to his hand and third that a pot of paste, knocked over by some previous movement on his part, lay near the typewriter, with its contents oozing over a sheet of unused paper. You ask me to mention all details, and I have done so. Dreamily he moved his finger, but whether in thanks or an injunction for me to continue, I could not determine. I therefore remained still. I saw the paste, he murmured and taking this as an intimation to proceed, I went on till I came to the moment when I pulled down the shade. "'You glanced out as you did that?' said he, lifting his finger as a signal for me to pause. "'Yes.' "'And saw Mr. Rosenthal in his room in the neighboring extension?' "'Yes.' "'Standing how? With his back or his face to the window?' "'His back. He was sauntering about his room.' "'So that settles one fact.' He had not been looking into Mr. Gillespie's room at a critical moment. Had he seen that gentleman in a suffering condition, or noted the curious incidents following your entrance, he would have been held to the spot by his curiosity, and you would have encountered his eager face staring down upon a scene of such uncommon interest. Very true. All he saw was the seemingly insignificant incident of Mr. Gillespie emptying the contents of a wine-glass out of his window. As Sweetwater had no remark to make to this, I proceeded with my narrative, relating, with a careful attention to details, my journey upstairs, the words I had overheard at the door of Alfred's room, my first sight of hope, and—I was proceeding to describe the results of my intrusion into the Gillespie attic, when I perceived that Sweetwater was no longer listening. His head, which had been raised from between his hands, was turned my way, but his eyes were looking into space, and his whole body was quivering in intense excitement, such as I have seldom seen. As I paused, he came back to earth and jumped to his feet. "'Come,' he cried, "'come with me to the Gillespie house. I have an idea. It may not stand the test. It may prove a fatuous one, but—' The very hair on his forehead was bristling. 
The eagerness he tried to keep out of his voice showed itself in his eyes and in every jerking movement which he made. Come, he cried again. It is not late. We will find the young gentleman at home, and perhaps— He added nothing to that significant perhaps, but his repressed excitement had awakened mine, and my hat was on, and I was following him downstairs before I realized that I had failed to turn out my gas. As I wheeled about with the intention of rectifying this oversight, I encountered Underhill's languid figure loitering in his doorway. He accosted me with an easy, "'Hello, Uthwaite.' Then, as he leaned close enough to whisper in my ear, he added in an indescribable drawl these unexpected words. "'I recognize your friend there. If you are piling up the evidence against poor Leighton Gillespie, you are doing wrong.' No fellow with a heart like his ever put poison into his father's wine. Which shows the folly of thinking you know a man's mind before he speaks it. End of chapter 31